0: This is Cybite, episode 65, for October 2nd, 2012. everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast. Live every Tuesday night at jblive.tv, and then fresh for download Wednesdays at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you.
1: Happy science.
0: All right, so what are we talking about today?
1: Today, we're going to take a look at the scientific excuse to eat chocolate. Shifting plate tectonics, measuring a black hole, possible new elements, comets, statues, an update on Google Maps, crowdsourcing science, spacecraft, and curiosity updates, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week.
0: Sounds like a heck of a show. Then let's kick things off with the news. You know, something told me I should have grabbed a chocolate bar before today's episode yes all right give me the science to why i can now eat chocolate to podcast
1: okay a recent study actually shows that chocolate might help increase your memory
0: i'm liking this so far
1: i love this part <laughs> so not you know i'm totally unbiased for for chocolate but so there's you know you hear all about the, like these superfoods.
2: Mm-hmm. sure you know? yeah
1: it's It's actually kind of an unscientific term. There's not a lot of scientific basis or studies about this that kind of prove beneficial effects. Yeah. You know, and a lot of those uh, superfood groups include dark chocolate, which, you know, I like that part. Mm -hmm. But an undergraduate student at the University of Calgary actually became curious about what certain dietary factors might have on memory. Okay. So he's like, yeah, well alright, you know, everyone talks about this chocolate stuff. I don't think it's going to do anything. So he narrowed it out and he got this particular uh, flavonoid that was found in chocolate, green tea, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So you can't really do this kind of a test on on humans because there's way too many other things that are gone. There's too many external factors. A lot of
0: variables in a human.
1: Yeah, Yeah. That's, you know, day to day, week to week. It's not a lot of Consistency. Yeah. So what they did was they grabbed some pond snails. Oh. And they, they got... So what happens is when they're in uh, deoxygenated water, when the oxygen supply is pretty low, they extend these little breathing tubes.
0: I've seen that, of course, yeah.
1: You know, so they're trying to search for actual air. So what they did was they had them, and they put them in um, unoxygenated water. They kind of tapped the little... Shell to make make sure they didn't put out their little, their uh, feelers, their breathing tubes. Okay. So they're kind of training them. All right, when we tap, don't put them out. Keep your little breathing tubes to yourself.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: So then they fed them this uh, flavonoid, the specific flavonoid. Uh-huh. They kind of had a, a baseline to make sure they weren't getting, making the snails wired. Okay. <laughs> so they're they're not. Yes. So.
0: Science is calling to let you know that yes. uh, this that the uh, the snails did actually in fact get a little hyper.
1: <clears throat> yes, I think they did. So the, so what they were able to do is run this <laughs> test and see. All right. So in general, they were able to make these intermediate term memories last about three hours. Okay. But nothing could go for twenty four hours or so on these. So after they fed them the flavonoids, they actually, you know, from the dark chocolate, they're able to remember to keep their breathing tubes closed and like for over a day. With two training sessions, they were able to actually remember it three days later when generally it was like a couple of hours. So they're going from hours to days with this specific flavonoid. So it's, and it's not, it wasn't only extending you know the amount of time that they could remember it, but how strong the memories were. You know, you have one thing, and you you have a memory of it, and then you try to override it with something else. You know, so every time uh, the phone rings, you throw a, a book at it.
0: Right. Sure. That's what most people and, do.
1: Yeah. And uh, so then suddenly, when the phone rings, now you need to do something else. Yeah. And it like yell at your spouse. Yeah, you'll, you know, you do
0: that's, that. Yeah, sure, you could. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that's what I would do, unless yeah. it was her fault again that somebody was calling at this time of night.
1: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> books might be thrown back at you, but anyway, <laughs> that's true. The, the whole yes. idea is when you override another memory, mm-hmm. it's called uh, extinction, actually, and so the original uh, the original memory is it forgotten? The additional memory is stored, you know, weakly. So there's all these kind of things going on. So, with the uh, flavonoid-fed snails, they wanted to keep that original memory. It was hard to train them into a different memory. Oh. So, so it was, you know, tap the the shell and now put up your breathing tubes instead of put down. And they really wanted to stay with the the original memory, the mental training cycle. So, it was kind of... Interesting, and it's not just uh, sensory going on here. Like um, you know, triggering a memory. Mm. I mean, like uh, smell. You know, they have a predator by smell, and that makes them store the memories in a certain way and, if, and act a certain way. Mm. But with the essentially the snail version of uh, half a bar of dark chocolate, it was. Able to store those memories in a different way, so it was directly affecting the brain, and was able to let them remember all these things, you know, longer and have that memory even stronger in the brain. So this is interesting
0: because you know I've heard that uh, some people, like in uh, college, will try mm-hmm. uh, specific caffeine regimens, and I so far mm-hmm. they went so far that there was a study done that. Um, college students who studied for an exam under the influence of caffeine would be were able to recall the uh, the details for the exam during the actual exam time uh, generally better than the average student. If they also hmm. had caffeine at the time of the exam, if they didn't have oh. caffeine at both times, it didn't work. But it's this interesting idea where if you're doing something, there might be something you you can, there might be a chemical that your mind could take. Just like you're, there's a chemical your muscle can use when you're exercising and it may be is a more, it, it utilizes, you know, you can exercise more efficiently writer effectively so it's maybe it's like it's in a sense that your mind is kind of like a muscle in some ways you're kind of enhancing its ability to perform a specific type of task and maybe you could take Mm -hmm. something like this when you're learning right maybe it'd be like a supplement you could have
1: (laughs) well yeah i mean looking back at college i had a little bowl of m&ms and i saw the a homework answer and then i'm able to and then i allow myself a couple m&ms see that was training regimen and chocolate involved look at that (laughs) you were saying about the, the muscle memory. Yeah. That's incredibly true. What was it? I remember uh, in junior high, um, spelling and me didn't really get along at one point.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I still have that problem.
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, during my lunch break, if I had a spelling test, you know, I'd eat really quick and then I'd go to the library and I would walk around this table in the library in the back corner looking, you know, looking at my spelling spelling words and like, repeating them very slowly and just kind of going over them over in my head. And then when I get in the test, I actually kind of sit with my my feet like walking under my desk I was like tapping them. Teacher looks at me like I'm completely nuts, but suddenly the the letters are coming back to my brain. Really? And I was like, you look at me nuts all you want, I'm getting a better grade.
0: That's an interesting uh that's kind of like an interesting little approach. So you like it's like a, an association thing, you think?
1: Yeah. Well, for me, that that works that way. I did a lot of uh, theater. So if I had to learn a part at the very last minute because someone was sick or something happened, I would learn everything while I was moving. I was like, all right, tell me, do I need to walk over here and then put this book down? Okay, I'm going to be doing this all at the same time. Like, don't you want to learn separately? I'm like, no, everything must be connected.
0: I find it, with, yes. uh, with computer systems... Uh, mm-hmm. somebody can tell me something, yeah. And like, okay, uh, you know, uh, use Vi, edit the Etsy uh, RC dot local file, and do and go to line 55 and change these things, blah blah. blah. And if it's mm-hmm. simple enough, I can grasp it immediately. But if it's yeah. a very long, complicated, drawn out process, I can get it the first time if they show it to me. I'll just yes. I just I can watch them do the process, and then I can I get it. But if they explain it to me, I might have to ask like at a couple stages. Okay, now was okay. Now I do this here, right? And then I do mm-hmm. this here. So it's very interesting, like it's part of it's like if it's, a, it's, a, it's visual, but it's visual yeah. with context or something. It's a, yeah, it, there, it, it are,
1: sticks there back. are very specific ways and they, they have tests and things like, are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a mix? There's different types of people that work well. Was it uh, my grandmother and my aunt when they went on road trips, it was marvelous for them. One of them could learn audit- just by hearing it and one of them had to see it. So one would read the map and read it aloud to the other person and they could get to where they wanted to go. And they just had to, that was the way it had to be. They tried it any other way. They get lost and end up in some <laughs> goodness knows where behind a barn. <laughs> so it, it is, and it's, it's interesting how these different. The flip side um,
0: though, I find really wild about that is, so I would consider that, I would, cons- I would kind of label that as me being a visual learner, right? Mm-hmm. But then you take something like an audio book and I had the Stephen King audio book where there was this there's this southern person uh woman in it and she kind of had this accent and she she said this one guy's name in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And this is an audiobook. And yeah. I read this book about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Today, <clears throat> I'm watching a TV show and I hear a voice that reminds me of this of this person and I start visualizing the movie that I saw this person in and the scene and what the person yeah. looked like and the clothes they wore and then I realized, oh wait a minute, I that was an audiobook. So I had this entire visual image mm-hmm this entire visual construct in my brain somewhere of what yes. that scene was like and all of that. It was all st- yep. it was all from, an, from listening to something, but I guess the way the brain processed it, it still created a visual for it.
1: Yes, if I read a book and saw the movie for it and it was like a while back, like from my childhood, I actually have to ver- watch the movie very carefully because I have two versions of that book visually. One when I read it, one when I saw it, and I was like, all right, No, that scene was in my head from the book. Oh, this scene is actually in the movie. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, it's just Mm -hmm.
1: the different ways that your brain processes things and remembers things. And does everybody get affected by these kind of flavonoids the same? And how do you remember? And it's, the brain is really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Really complicated. Yeah. So it's all these different ways that can affect and what works for you. And I'd say that. Learning how your brain, you know, works for you, how you learn things, how you remember things the best, that is definitely one of the most important aspects to doing well, learning things or in school or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's figuring out what works for you. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So, and it it is all about that. You know, you have, you see something, um, there's certain smells that, you know, throw me back to a certain place. Oh, sure. Yeah know and it's all these connections and or memories songs and how can to, do that yeah or songs any of these type of things yeah that can work together to trigger a memory and so it's how you know how can you lay the foundations down to you know make sure that you have a better chance to hold that memory and how do you bring it back and i i took this whole story as uh i have better excuse to eat chocolate yeah but there's so much more more to it like you know so it's interesting about, you know, all the different studies that can be done about what can increase and decrease and how it affects the, the brain and the memory and how they all combine together.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Very interesting stuff, Heather. That is uh, one. Uh, now, thank you, snails, for laying the foundation yes. to the science. Now, uh, if they need any human trials, uh, they can contact Heather I, Cybite, at at JupiterBroadcasting.com. And, and we, will
1: be, uh, we will make the sacrifice. Yeah. To eat chocolate for, yeah. for science. Yeah.
0: Maybe we should eat chocolate during the shows, and then on the next show, see if we can remember what we talked about in the previous show.
1: Oh. Ah. That's a good idea. There we go. All
0: right, Heather, well, let's take a quick pause here, and uh, let's talk about actually something that I was talking about on the pre-show before we got recording, something that made a big impact on me and created a lot of memories. So, Jupiter Broadcasting shows uh, are funded by our audience, because we kind of have niche programming And uh, we have uh, sort of adopted this model because it works really well for us and it keeps us honest and keeps us only reporting to the people who actually consume the content. It's an interesting concept. And uh, one of the great ways we can do that because it allows you to contribute to the network without really impacting your budget, you just do it as purchases you're already going to make, is through the affiliate links we have. And uh, we often have an Amazon pick because that's one of our favorite affiliate uh, sites out there. And Heather, you picked a great book this week yes red moon rising sputnik and the hidden rivalries rivalries that ignited the space age now yes. you've read the you've read the book and i've listened to the book
1: i haven't actually gotten to read the whole thing yet but oh. i've i've looked a lot i've looked a lot about it and it's definitely oh. on oh. my Top. must finish this yes. yes soon list
0: yes you must i mean this uh so this uh, interesting so uh, i'll talk about the audiobook version because that's what i've got but we'll have links mm-hmm. to both in the show notes um Red moon rising it it really it really helped me understand so much of what I missed out on because I'm just a generation or three too late for a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of what was going on when when we really decided. To uh, to, you know, take the leap into space. And it starts it literally starts at the fundamental basics of like the rocket propulsion breakthroughs that we had to have and like how they had to figure out how to get get things just right. And then on from there. And it is it was one of my first five or so audiobooks that I got. Now, I mind you, I probably have about one hundred and thirty five audiobooks in my library now. And they're always on demand, which is great. You just pull them down. You can pull them down in files that you can keep for yourself, or you can just keep them in their in their online storage. And uh, Red Moon Rising was probably like my fifth book or so. And mm-hmm. this book is so good that it's what sold me to find. I mean, like it was like, oh wow, I am all in on audiobooks now. So I'll, I just want to play a sample. This is this is one of my favorite all time books altogether. Uh, reading it or audiobook. SS suddenly heard a sound like the cracking of a giant whip. They knew, without looking up, that their rocket had just broken the sound barrier, and it was still accelerating, outrunning its own blast wave. Twenty-five seconds had elapsed since liftoff.
1: During that period, the rocket had shed 6,000 pounds.
2: The temperature of the sheet metal covering parts of its outer skin had spiked from 297 degrees below zero Fahrenheit at the time of fueling to over 300 degrees. The stress on its steel rib cage and interior framing
0: had increased to nearly four times the force of gravity. It's a great, great book. And he goes through uh, this, that's the very beginning of the book. We're well, not the very, very beginning, but like the first 10 minutes or so of the book. Yeah. And it's. Oh, so good. So Red Moon Rising, Sputnik and the Hidden Rivals that Ignited the Space Age. And uh it's uh it's written by uh Matthew Brzezinski, I think maybe is how you say it's, it. I think that's how you say it. And uh if you if you want to grab it on Kindle, you can. It's 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 crazy cheap. It's nine ninety nine on Kindle. Uh if you want to grab it on Audible, we'll have a link in the show notes. If you're new to Audible, this would be an amazing book to break you in on to see if you want to do this. And here's the cool thing. If you are new, you can get this book for free. Use the link we'll have in the show notes. You sign up. You get this book for free. You can cancel after 30 days. Uh, you get to keep the book. They don't. Uh, it doesn't deactivate or anything like that. Um, but I think you'll want to, especially when you combine it with their mobile app. They've just added WhisperSync. So if you have a Kindle and you have oh, a wow. portable device that plays Audible... You it will now sync all of them up, and if you have the book edition of this, and then you get the audiobook later on, it will sync between the book edition and the audio edition. So it's like perfect for like read the book when you're at home on the couch, and then you get in the car, you you, you listen to the audio version for however long you drive for, and then it just syncs them right back up when you get back home again. It's it's Very awesome. Nice. It's yeah. Uh, Amazon's got some crazy stuff, and that is just uh, one of my all time favorite books. So I know I went on, I went on and on, but I mean, I really, I really like that book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, if, even if you like were there at the time and got to live through it, this there's often so many so much in the background going on.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, and so much more. Uh, so much more has come out. You know, stuff that we were it was completely classified back then. So yeah. All right, Heather. Well, why don't we move on to the news bite? All right, Heather. What is our first story in the news bite?
1: All right. Plate tectonics. The Indo-Australian plate. Is breaking into two or three different pieces because it, of its collision with Asia. It's you know it's hitting in in India. It's hitting the mountain range and it's slowing down, while the uh, the other side is kind of diving under the island of Sumatra. Mm. So there's this twisting going on that's actually breaking this you know tectonic plate apart. Now we're talking geological, you know. Times. So it's, you know, thousands and millions of years that yeah. this will take to go on. But we've actually started seeing some significant parts of this moving. Mm. There was the great uh, Indian Ocean quake in uh, April. It was reported like eight ma- 8.6 magnitude.
2: Mm.
1: Now, actually, now they're estimating that it was about 40% larger than it had first been believed to be. So it's hard with the ocean. Bearing uh, earthquakes about, you know, telling what it, how strong it was. And in addition, this one uh, was a slip, um, was it a slip strike?
0: Oh, I've never heard of that before. It sounds fancy.
1: (laughs) Well, it's, it's more, instead of going up, they just kind of uh, strike slip fault. It's when they slide alongside each other. So, you know, the first quake, um, uh, there was a major quake, and it disturbed four other faults. So in less than two minutes, um, four other places in some huh. were able were affected by this. They were, you know, less than magnitude five, but the first one, you know, ninety miles long. But what happens instead of diving one side up, which is you know a major, what you're concerned about in the ocean is tsunamis. Then, but this actually, where this uh, the seafloor just kind of slipped a hundred feet alongside each other. So say you, you draw a line across the the fault and then it happens and one side slips. Now there's a hundred feet between one side of the line and another.
2: Hmm.
1: So then another one, it slipped, you know, 25 feet and uh, four different uh, pieces of these faults, four different faults in various partic- perpendicular ways. We're, able, we're sliding and making all these movements. Now, most of the time when a a major quake hits, there are some other quakes that hit, you know, elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But for this particular one, there was actually quite a bit more. The number of quakes of magnitude five or larger located, you know, ways away, whereas five or six times the amount within the next week. So it was an incredible increase in earthquakes. So they were trying to just figure out, well, normally this kind of a size of earthquake doesn't really cause that many, you know, large earth, you know, moderately sized earthquakes so far away. But they're thinking it's because of the uh, strike slip uh, geometry. It actually is kind of instead of staying still, it just kind of. Uh, jumping up and down, so they're you know trying to ride on top of each other or underneath each other. This sliding action kind of causes geometrical stress other places. Mm. you know. So it causes uh, a twisting motion elsewhere in the plate. So it kind of domino effects throughout all various faults into the other parts of the world, mm. causing all these other earthquakes. So as they go along, they're kind of seeing this plate, the stresses of this plate more and more, starting to break apart, but I mean, it started to deform, No, like it started this whole process about 10 million years ago as it, you know, hitting the Himalayas, going up, slowing the part where India is, it's slowing down. So, I mean, it's been going on for 10 million years. It's just Mm -hmm. the, the large quake in April sort of triggered a whole bunch of other little ones. It's so many times with these, it's the energy involved. You know, you have a whole bunch of tension on them. And so you have a major release, and then that kind of causes stress elsewhere to kind of, you know, ease off. Think of it like um, if I have like a piece of, you know, I have a, a piece of fabric or a pair of jeans or something, there's a big rip. You know, they're kind of old pairs. So you sew up the major rip. And you you strengthen that part. But now all the other kind of moderately weak places, they're getting more stress. Then they start showing, you know, maybe tears. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of a similar theory in a a really basic science kind of cringes way. (laughs) No, I follow you. But so, so we're looking at this and it's just sort of, it's interesting for these long geological time frames, you know, in astronomy or geology, looking at such long time periods that when you see something, you know, happening, you're like, oh, wow, we can actually see this little snippet of something happening. We need to pay attention to that because this kind of gives you an overall view of a better idea of what the whole, what's happening on the whole. You know, I mean, as far as millions of years go, there's only so good of science. You know, our, you know, measurements of a certain... Consistency only go back to a certain time frame. Yeah, sure. So you're working in that, you know, in that time frame. So when you see something actively happening, you can make a lot better guesses about what's happening on the longer time frame. So in this particular earthquake of this type, where this strike-slip type is actually, they think it is the, might be the largest of this type ever actually recorded. Whoa. Now there was... One in Tibet in 1950 that was recorded, but don't know what kind of uh, or kind of earthquake it was. They hmm. so don't know if they were sliding or it was going up and down. So you get to a certain point, and I mean, we have historical knowledge about what this earthquake was, and actually, you can go back in time for these earthquakes before you're actually measuring. Go um, in; they, sometimes they go into graveyards and they look at. The gravestones, and you can see a crack, or <laughs> you know how bad the crack is, and you can take the dates, you know, from these or you know buildings, anything of this nature, and you can kind of say, okay, this has a major fault. It would have taken this kind of an earthquake for all of these to happen, and so there's one at this time frame. And there's one in this time frame, and you can look at. You know, that you can look at on coastal regions, you can go down and get uh, soil samples, you know, and they've been able to see, um, was it, I saw one, uh, documentary that they went down and they had this huge spot that was a lot of silt, you know, uh, up, up river, just a little bit in this, you know, coastal region. So like, all right, well, this is a point where a lot of ocean came inland, so there must have been, you know, for that it's not just storm surge; it's you know tsunami, speak. So they're able able to, I don't know, if they were able to, to to hook up the time frames in the west coast of America to Japan. And they're able to actually kind of see similar events at a, a specific time, and say, okay, well, this earthquake. Probably happened in roughly this part of the ocean. It was probably roughly this strong. So, there's so many different ways you can go back and kind of extract data, sort of data in the data, data in historical right. context. Right. You can kind of guess more information out of it. But this kind of specific, you know, recently we're actually seeing the specific documented stuff. And so, we're able to say, okay, well, this is a very known quantity so we have very strict data set on this and then we kind of look on the larger scale make guesses kind of plug in the moderate information you know by looking at these you know buildings or gravestones and soil samples and say okay you're starting to kind of bring everything together to kind of for these plate tectonics so i mean it's similar things sort of in astronomy where you're looking at Hmm. what's happening here or there, This bringing it back into, into the Earth where you have these long time frames. You're trying to bring it all together as best you can.
2: Hmm.
0: Very true. I hadn't thought of it like that. Well, while we're talking about astronomy, I believe our next story is going to help us size up a black hole.
1: I think so. An international team has actually for the first time measured the radius of a black hole.
0: This is awesome. It yes. Seems like black holes are these mysterious things that we talk a lot about. Yeah, but there's a lot of details missing.
1: Yes. So start off. There's a certain point. Uh, everyone kind of knows the 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 name, you know, quote unquote, event horizon. That's the point where nothing can cross. You know, it's it's a one way trip. But there is also this area where you have an accretion disk there, which is a kind of a area of dust and gas making kind of a pancake circling around this black hole. It's because there is some you know external force going on. There's go- so there's well, how, to, how to describe this in a way that science won't cry. Um, so you're getting everything coming together mm-hmm. but it can't all go in at the same time. So think uh, big tarp full, full of balls, and you had a little hole in the bottom. They're not all going in at the same time. Right. They're going through at a slower
0: rate. Right, they get funneled in.
1: Yeah, so everything's going funneled in. And so there's this place where the forces of the energy and the static going out from this accretion disk, uh, from the event horizon, kind of hit. So there's this area where... There is you know this pancake of like I said this gas and dust that's slowly feeding into the event horizon. So you get this pile up and you can t- take this pileup of of stuff, the accretion disk, and you can measure that and get a be- much better idea of what's going on. In fact, there were some theories that these these rotate so well what? The rotation is the black hole rotating in a similar fashion. Uh-huh. You can tell that by you know the magnetic fields. You can actually see, you know, measure the magnetic fields uh, from the accelerating material, and those can create you know powerful beams. You'll sometimes see in uh, astronomical pictures you know a a black hole and there's giant jets coming from it, and you're like, wow jet escaping from a black hole doesn't quite make sense, but that's what it's coming from is these this the magnetic fields you know, from all this hot so it's, it, some of it is before it gets into the black hole is escaping and being jetted out into space and it can actually deform the, a big enough one can deform the galaxy itself but They were able to... Now, telescope hasn't... We don't have the magnifying power to be able to see this uh, small of detail about a black hole until now. Now, what they've actually done is it's called the Event Horizon Telescope, and it uses this idea of... They call it very long baseline interferometry, which is... What it means is you can simultaneously take a couple of different telescopes... You can take one, say, from the East Coast of the U.S. and the West Coast of the U.S. So you have these two, and they're viewing something at the exact same time. Now, in specific band of light, the interfer- inter- tra- <laughs> interferometry, you can actually, with those measurements, pretend like the dish is the size of the separation of them. So if you have one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, it is like the entire dish is... Span of the US. Okay. So, with that kind of large size, now you can look at things in that late, in that kind of particular detail. This set, the Event Horizon Telescope, there's one in Hawaii, Arizona, California. There's all these different, very far apart places that you can then use to get details 2,000 times finer than what's capable in the Hubble Space Telescope they're able to take all these simultaneously viewed moments so that everyone records and they have a local uh, atomic clock that they use. And then they take all the data afterwards. Say, all right, let's line up all the atomic clock data and put everything together and now combine all this data to get things on a much finer scale. So they were able to combine all this to measure the innermost orbit of the accretion disk. And that thing can kind of figure out as five and a half times the size of the black hole horizon, event horizon. So once they're able to combine all this data to measure the inside of the accretion disk, then they can calculate the event horizon and from that get you know, the size of the black hole. And they're able to actually, with this in addition, see the laws of physics suggest that you know the accretion disk would been in the same direction as the black hole. And this actually confirms that. It's kind of a direct observation that can that is looking at the jets coming out and the accretion disk and being able to say, oh yes, they are actually all rotating in the same way. And mm. they're even looking at, you know, adding more telescopes to this array in Chile, in Europe, in Mexico, and Greenland and Antarctica, and all these different places. And it's how far apart can you get telescopes that can accurately measure something?
0: Well I just imagine if we could set up telescopes on Mars and then coordinate them with telescopes back here
1: yeah the that would be interesting
0: or even the moon a, I guess I should just shoot yeah. for the moon even I'd be happy with that
1: yeah I mean at a certain point the I mean there's parallax so you know if you have for the Venus transit uh, the East Coast. You know, the eastern part of the Earth and the western part of the Earth see it differently. Because there's just a little bit, like, it's the left eye, right eye thing. So you look, you know, hold out your finger at your monitor at arm's length, and you look at your left eye, and then you look at with your right eye, and it moves just slightly. Now with something, so that would be a concern, but with something far enough away, at essentially infinity... Because of the distance of these, then they wouldn't get a lot of that. Hmm. So yeah, that would I hadn't actually thought about that. You get so set up one on Mars, set up one on Earth, hook it up so that you're working at it when you're on opposite sides of the orbit.
2: Yeah. So you there have you Mars go.
1: on one side of the sun, you have oh, Earth wow. on the other. Totally. <laughs> now, could this actually work? That is a question. Somebody should write
0: but, in and let us know if they have thoughts.
1: Yes. If you have thoughts about it, if you know more about this. So, but that would be really interesting, you know. It could that work, and how would the the science behind it work? So,
0: hmm. yeah, absolutely. All right, Heather. Well, then, what do you say? It's time for the two by news. <laughs> two by news on silent. The two by news.
1: Ooh. One day we'll have a, a an official course. I
2: gotta be careful.
0: I, think I, it's more- I. I could wake up the family. I get so excited with these jingles. <laughs> I think if we put any more jingles in the show, I probably would wake up one of the kids. That's probably what would happen.
1: (laughs) Probably. Then it would be not, you know, science show. It would be the jingle show.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. It would be a morning zoo show then. All right. Well, what is our (laughs) first story in the Two byte News?
1: All righty. Element 113. Japanese researchers have claimed that they have conclusive evidence of this element that they've been looking for for a long time now. Hmm. Super heavy, super unstable, near the bottom of the periodic table. So, for for these super heavily elements, they don't occur in nature. They have to be produced in a lab using particle accelerators, nuclear reactors, ion separators, all
2: a slew wow.
1: of complex equipment. Okay. And they don't last for long. I mean, you have a very, very short time scale. So, they've been hunting for this specific element for like nine years. Now, there's been evidence of it a few times, but this is the clearest set of data they have. And... So, and Japan is kind of excited about this because most of the elements, uh, the heavier elements were America, Russians, Russians and Americans working together, Germans. So, this would be the first of these super heavy elements that Japan would have discovered. And should the um, International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, goodness, uh, (laughs) say that this is actually true and they accept it, then they would actually get to name it. So they're kind of looking forward to that.
0: Oh, I wonder what they'll call it.
1: I don't know. I don't know if they know yet. Yeah, maybe they, 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 pro- well, they probably have a whole slew of ideas, but
0: wonder if they want to call it cybite. what do you Oh, think? What do you think? Well, yeah, yeah. There you go. Very good. I'm glad you iterated on that. I needed that. So, okay. Psybitium.
1: So if it, just in case any of our, our listeners are these, Really, really smart people, speeding zinc ions into like ten percent of the speed of light and smashing them into bismuth. Then, you know, Cybidium. Totally, you know, totally random idea.
0: Just put it out there.
1: Yeah, just just saying.
0: Just put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts on that one?
1: No. One thing I did find interesting is that we'd elements ninety through. 3 to 112 have been discovered and then some recent elements, 114 and 116. So it's not like we're discovering them you know, 93, 94, 95. It's all about the number of electrons there. So it's seeing what is caused off from that. So you know, we have 112, we had 114 so this would be 113 that possibly discovered, then we're missing 115. So it's kind of interesting how we How we kind of discover these and how they come about.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this next story is interesting for anyone that might suffer from a little dyslexia.
1: Yes. Just a brief note on this. I Twittered it, actually. I saw that there is this app you can put on your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle. Now, for dyslexia, it is a a grand wide. It it works differently for pretty much everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. There's people who, you know, flip the whole word, flip letters, just various things, flip specific letters or numbers. And for some people, you know, you have to go about combating that in different ways. Now, for some people having this um, bottom heavy font so that it's, you know, kind of the ink is essentially thicker on the bottom of the letters. Yeah. It helps them keep everything in line. So there's somebody who's gone through and made a whole uh, font of this bottom-heavy text and put it out there as a free so you can put it out there and you can, you can apply it to everything. So hoping to be able to help people to read it easier. So kind of combating dyslexia for some people. And it's if you have dyslexia or know that somebody with dyslexia, it's all... You know, why, why not try everything?
0: Very cool. And uh, link to uh, dyslexicfonts.com in the show notes. You can download it as a system font. So you can set it on your system if you have trouble. Uh, but it also looks like you can use it as a web font if you want to set it up on yes. your website. So, uh, gosh, that's really neat. They've even made provisions if you want to uh, embed it into a mobile app. Uh, they have mm-hmm. also uh, an it? So, so what does their iOS app do? Oh you know, okay. Was- oh, this is really neat. So what it does? Okay, so they have a okay. uh, it's it's a web browser. It's it's it uses the Safari browser that's built into iOS, but uh, it gives you all the fonts in bottom heavy. So if you have a hard time reading the web on a, like an oh. iOS device, yes, then uh, this uh, this will be a, a way for for those folks to to do that. Yeah. And it's uh, it's free. So we we'll have a link to that in the show notes too.
1: Definitely, I know people that have it have it and they try you know it's I wonder if works. I
0: have it sometimes because like people have got to notice like you know I just cannot pronounce anything and on top of that I have the hardest time reading emails like out oh, loud, yeah. you know out loud I can read them personally I don't know maybe I think I just what it is is I have a slow brain I think I don't think it's dyslexia <laughs> I think it's just slow
2: also.
1: yeah well the person I knew was flipping b's and d's and twos and sixes and they saw them in various different ways so I've known people who've you know flipped the whole word, so it's kind of interesting about you know some people you know put colored, you know clear uh you know colored see-through uh plastic on top, and it helps them. But this is one that that I hadn't seen before, and was, especially since it's free.
0: Yeah, that's great. Good find. Heather. Yeah, good find. Uh, all right, so let's talk about a comet.
1: Yes. All right. Astronomers do not like to predict the future. We do not like to predict the future. All we know is that there is a comet that will probably be around in the sky next March. Now, that is way far away. But if, you know, like there's a whole range of what could happen. One, it could just, it's going to pass pretty near the sun. It could pretty much just crumble, collapse, and be nothing. But if everything works out, it could actually be, one of the kind of one of the top amazing comets for Ooh. recent and it's um if you remember a comet H- hail bop from 96 oh yeah of course so this would kind of be similar to that so you've actually seen it we have a little picture of where it is now and it won't be very exciting because it's just a big chunk of <laughs> dirty ice you're wrong but it's but,
0: thrilling heather
1: it is thrilling orange little blob. So, originally, eventually that orange little blob of dirty ice will swing by the sun and then it will come close enough to Earth so that we'll actually be able to see it. Now, let's all hope that in SciBite March 2013, when I say to looking up every week, it'll be, oh my gosh, the comet's still there. It's awesome. Now, in, I mean the grandest idea would be that, you know, it would be really bright in the sky, the tail would go half across the sky, you know, it would be visible in twilight, It, you know. So, we'll see, and now that we, is, the more you predict that, the more it's likely that it will just kind of break up into a million pieces
2: uh, yeah. as it passes the hopefully sun. Hopefully Hopefully we'll yeah, get a hopefully.
1: show. So, just kind of a, I saw that and I was like, oh, I don't want to jinx it, but Keep it's kind of posted. interesting that just keep us we've posted. got one of these coming by.
0: You're not jinxing us. That's not. No. See, all, all you have to do is if you just keep us posted, then, yes. then it's keeping tabs. If you yeah, put it out there once and you never talk about it, that's jinxing it. That's the okay. way it works. That's the,
1: so yeah. whenever I find more information, as it gets closer and astronomers are actually willing to say anything yeah. Yeah. about the future, then hopefully we'll all be having uh More things interesting to say about this.
0: All right. Well, something that I think you can add, like food. Like you add a little salt to most things, it makes it better. Right? Okay. If you get something from space, that's awesome. So, our next story is perfect.
1: Yes. So, this thousand-year-old ancient Buddha statue, which was originally recovered in 1938, has actually been recently analyzed by scientists, and it was found to be carved from a meteorite. Statues from space. Ace, yes.
0: How uh, what?
1: So, the, it's kind of known as the Iron Man, weighs about 22 pounds. And it's this stylistic hybrid between Buddhist and pre Buddhist Bond culture. Very cultural. I'm not going to make that science cry. Um, but it was originally discovered in 1938 by uh, an expedition of German scientists. And
0: don't Nazis right?
1: Yes, uh, probably taken because of the they swast- were Nazis. <laughs> no, in uh, ancient Indian, their specific cultures, it's the the Nazi swastika is actually from a reverse of of the of that. Okay, of a swa- original swastika from that is sort of from Indian culture. I believe it's good luck or something. Okay. So they kind of stole that and because of borrowing that, you know, thinking that the Aryan race came from India, all sorts of fun, Nazi, crazy science, but they got it, question mark how. It was amazingly came back with them to Germany and it finally came up for auction in 2007 where it could study. So able to you know, go to this and study what it is, what it's made of. They would classify it as a a taxite. It's a rare class of iron meteorite, high contents of nickel. So they're able to say, all right, this is the exact composition of this. That is a meteorite. That is the specific type of meteorite. And in fact, they can hook it up to a, uh, to a crash in the Mongolia-Siberia area like 15,000 years ago.
0: So this statue is fifteen thousand years old.
1: No, that was when the meteorite fell.
2: Oh, oh, okay.
1: Then you know, somewhere cool. along the line, somebody <laughs> chiseled out a fragment of this, and you know, tromped it across, and you know, carved a statue into it about a thousand years
0: ago. So that kind of, that kind of would indicate that a thousand years ago, somebody had the wherewithal to recognize that was a meteorite. There and specifically seeked it out, and what I would assume would be no easy task to get a, a, a good chunk of rock from to carve from. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's there's it, a lot implied there. Am I following that though?
1: Yes, I mean, if you think about it, anything from space, anything was you know from the heavens when these rocks came down. There
2: is uh, okay, sure.
1: Two camps: the Earth is 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 ending, and somebody is mad at us, or. Oh my gosh, let's go get that. It is, you know, it is from the sky. It must be amazing.
0: Well, they're right about that part.
1: Well, yes, they're obviously right about that part. So you go and you have, you know, somebody maybe took a chunk of this rock and it was just, you know, it was just there. And then finally, um, somewhere in between that, when it got chopped off, I'm not quite sure if they know even, then a thousand years, somebody was able to carve out the Buddha statue. So the another interesting part is that the you've actually able to seen other debris from this specific uh, meteorite, the origin of it. Um, in 1913 was the first official do- documentation of it mm, okay. by some gold, gold prospectors. So it's also in some kind of interesting to that. So it's when was this? You know, this is the first discovery of this specific meteor that fell. You can you know, look at this. And it's kind of interesting because now they're looking at the price. And so often with these, you know, meteorites and things of very specific, or, you know, nothing's like it nature, how do you price that? You don't really price that. You know, they're looking and they're like, okay, well, there is no other uh, right. ancient human engraved statue made from a meteorite.
0: Yeah, it makes gold look quaint. You're like, how do we? Oh, that's make diamond. That? That's adorable. This yeah. is meteor rock. Oh. I mean, come on. How do you beat meteor rock? Because not only is meteor rock rare, but that's there's you know each meteor rock is rare. Each of its yeah, each individual one. So that's a that's that's a good little prize they have there now. So who owns that? Do you know whose hands that ends up in now? Is it private or is it in a museum somewhere? What's the?
1: I believe currently it is probably private. Um. I believe the private person who got it in auction in 2007 is probably the one who said, okay, now I'm actually going to admit I'm going to bring this out to the scientific world. I'm going to say, all right, you guys check it out. Wow. And that's, that's what happens sometimes is these things are in private collections and then it has to kind of pass, pass around to somebody who's willing to bring it out to the public and say, all right, now this can be analyzed by science. So I just kind of came up along the way that in the end, it's taken to now, and we kind of see that. and so it was one of those interesting little bits of information. I was like, huh <laughs> they that they've kind of discovered this and now that they they've narrowed it down and they're able to say, you know this is this specific type of meteorite now it's from a chunk of one, obviously. Now go back and say, all right, where can what kind of meteorite?" of this nature, fell near this area, then they're able to say, all right, that must be from this crash 15,000 years ago. So it's interesting how they can kind of backtrack all these to a specific origin as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is really neat. That is really cool. All right, Heather, well, I've got good news. We've got a few news stories that have leveled up. That means we've got updates.
1: We do. talked about uh, crowdsourcing science a couple times, where there is online website where you can go and say all right um various things like on mars you can say this is a rock in uh stars you can say you can see the the brightness level and we've talked about kepler how it you can spot planets by watching the dim you know the uh, the dip in the in the light mm-hmm. every so often so mm-hmm. you can go through and look at stars and say here is a dip. Here is a dip. Oh, right. yeah! This looks like it's something very regular. Yeah. And if enough people upvote that, upvote that, then it goes into a different layer, and so you can kind of weed through this giant set of data by you know everyone going through it and kind of using saying, the built-in
0: pattern recognition, aka their brain.
1: Yes, because the human brain is really, really good at pattern recognition, way better than kind of science. So our you know, computers. So now that they have a different one, they now have a one that's for uh, the Cyclone Center, which is essentially, you know, hurricanes. Oh. So able to look at it and see like this is, you know, this stage of hurricane, this is kind of this part of it. And actually the one I saw was they kind of spit out like six different images it ended up being of the same storm at different times in its life. So I was you know, I was randomly picking and saying all right. This kind of looks, and of course, they'll have you know. This is what an eye wall. You know, you click the question mark, and it'll show you a couple pictures. Yeah, So, I've you kind seen of that. see, you're like, okay, this most looks like that kind of a picture, and line it line everything up. Yeah. So this is just another one of those interesting ones that now they've had, you know, ones in space, ones for weather, this kind of thing. This is a whole. The Zooniverse, there's a whole slew of these type of things on that website, which uh, link in the show notes.
0: This is neat.
1: That you can go through and you can say.
0: I could do this for hours.
1: Yes. I have to be wary of these sites because I can get really caught up in them. Oh, man. If I'm not careful. So there's these weather ones, there's space ones. I've even seen. Um, similar of this type, where it's they've scanned in captains' logs from ancient uh, ships. Oh, cool! So then it's you read and you go along and you read the handwriting and kind of type in. This is what I think the handwriting is saying. This is you know, oh, the barometer barometric pressure for this day is this. They see sunny, they see cloudy, and you kind of select that all out. Huh? Because computers have a hard time reading handwriting.
0: Yeah, well, especially, I mean, especially you know mine, on. mine. You should see mine, Heather. It's not even it's it's awful.
1: Yeah, well, humans can sort of read it most of the time, kind of maybe.
0: Well, my wife, yeah, yeah. Ange- Angela can, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes. No, that's about it, really. Okay. <laughs> well, it's I kid, you know I can Most it's not of that these. Bad.
1: Most of these captains have handwriting that you know a chunk of people can read. Yeah. So then. It's all about having these huge data sets that you can narrow down to a specific way in such, I can go on and say, all right, this looks like that, or this handwriting says this, and you get enough people together, and you can go through all this data and kind of move it up the line. And so then, you know, a team, you know, this team of scientists and engineers, which now doesn't have to be all that big, they can go through and say, okay. These, all of these pieces of data the people say is interesting. Now let's go through it. So then they go through it and they're like, oh, yes. And sometimes for these, uh, you get you know, recognition for if you're the first person who kind of upvoted it. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting science you're putting forward into a team and sometimes you get a little recognition and so it's it's kind of fun. It's addictive. Game science.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. And it's a good, it's a, uh, it's, It's it, you could call it a time killer, but at least you're, you know, at least you're kind of helping science. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this next story is an update on Google Maps, which uh, just seems to always be taking it up to the next level.
1: Yes. We, I believe the last time we talked about this, it was, they went through the Amazon. Oh, yeah, so that's you, right. you're going through the pass on the Amazon. Now they have one for the Great Barrier Reef. Yes. This is the first um, underwater one that they've done, so then it's kind of interesting because you can. There's a video that you can actually see of what they did, and they had a little a scuba diver and a little camera, and it was you know propelling him along essentially. Yeah.
0: Oh, so he's gonna
1: hang on, and it's flying. That's through the same camera specific.
0: they have on top of their cars
1: yeah very similar yeah well, it looks except, a lot, except
0: for it's you know waterproofed and inside yeah. Of it yeah it's waterproof
1: and it has a little you know jet on it yeah. or not jet oh. a little propeller so it's kind of pulling
0: i, I guess the I scuba just diver along. It's, it's that it's that uh it's that multi so they're taking a 360 degree picture as they go which is really cool and then they stitch it all together but yeah. this rig that they've assembled it on this this underwater camera rig you know th- this is really cool this is something i bet i wonder if they they must have had that custom built
1: yeah, well, they're going through and it's a combination of Google Maps and they're working with the World Wonders Project, they call it. And it's, they're specifically going through and saying, all right, we have this list of places we want to go through and film so that people can just click on the web and say, I want to go to the Great Barrier Reef because I'm probably not going to be able to do that on my vacation <laughs> just me. <laughs> this little this little corner science not going to be going there anytime soon. But I can go online and now I can literally kind of, you know, flow through these, you know, throw flu and see, you know, manta rays and sea turtles and boulder coral that could be hundreds of years old.
0: I just heard a very sad story that they're saying that... Uh, the- Fifty percent of the Barrier Reef has been destroyed in the last twenty-seven years.
1: Yeah, there's various numbers about what's happening to to the Great Barrier Reef. So it's another interesting point. Was it for NASA? You know, as right before they shut everything down in Florida, they went through and they got all this, you know, the video of where everything was. Yeah. You know what it looked like. And one of in the vehicle assembly building they actually had one of the shuttles still sitting there when they went through with the cameras right and now like the day this show was being filmed some of those buildings aren't there anymore right so you can go back and you can see things you now as they were so you can go you can see it so maybe it's something you can never you know go to yourself maybe it's something that you just want to preserve that moment in history for
0: well i think about it i think about it in terms of like kids, and, and I could show oh, my yeah. kids at, at home or yeah. uh, or schools, really.
1: Oh, incredibly so. You can <laughs> look at this kind of a uh, school trip. It's like,
0: already. Yeah. Well,
1: we're not leaving the school today, but you're going to see the Great Barrier Reef.
0: What's neat is I, want, I, think it's all, I think it's all HTML5, too. I don't even think it requires Flash. So, I mean, it just works yeah. on works on mobile devices it, it works on you know very basic library computers mm-hmm. they don't have to have a lot of horsepower it's 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 really impressive what google's doing for free and there's yeah. not I, they, you can expand the sidebar and there's some there's some ads you know but oh well, yeah but come on that's not so bad yeah very cool very cool of course heather has uh, gone through and picked a few of her favorite spots and linked to those in the show notes if you want to check them out and there's some good spots to explore it's a good those are like those are like it's like a little starter kit yeah Oh, listen to that. It must be time for a spacecraft update.
1: Yes, the Dawn spacecraft that went to see the asteroid Vesta and is going on now to see the asteroid um, Ceres, which is the largest asteroid in, in the uh, asteroid belt. But it finished all its imaging and its data recording from Vesta. So now they've got this slew of data that they're, that they're starting to go through. And one of the things that they were kind of very surprised by when they got there are these big troughs in Vesta. And so, it's like these huge faults. Hmm. And now, they're thinking that it could... Now, it could have been formed when another asteroid smashed into the South Pole. There's some very hmm. obvious large craters that this thing just got smashed with. And now that and there's some other data that indicates that this could have had a layered interior which means it had you know a liquid core hmm. a solid exterior so something that has larger bodies like planets and large moons so it shows that it could have had some of those qualities now you know they say okay it could be from this collision but and they see that there has um, the rock surface on Vesta was once molten. So all these different things are kind of pointing to the fact that it had a molten core and layers similar to the Earth. If you remember geography class and you see the Earth and there's all these you know concentric circles going in. So you can see all the different layers of Earth. And it's similar for other planets, other shallow bodies planets and now and larger moons so now it looks like vesta had a very similar quality the i mean these troughs are huge they're you know the size of the grand canyon so it's possible that it's just that it was ductile enough that it was able to move and stretch under a lot of pressure. It's also possible that when it hit, it kind of broke the crust apart and interior magma came up. Huh. It filled that in. It looks very similar to those kind of faults here on Earth. Now, if all this kind of comes together, what kept it from being a planet or being called a, um, you know, a, 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 a mini planet, essentially was that it it wasn't very concentric. It was kind of more potato than spherical. So that that was one of the major things that kept it from being called a dwarf planet. But if it's shown that it had this mantle and core, which are qualities reserved for planets and dwarf planets, then it doesn't really matter what its shape is now. It was still it would be classified as a dwarf planet. Just one that got the snot hit out of it. <laughs> you know, it just got hit and just got squashed into a different shape. Right. So, did the maybe it got hit and got into a different shape, or it was hit and everything heated up like, um, uh, say, a piece of clay or a putty. You mash it around in your hand long enough, and it gets warmed up, and then you, you know, set it down on the table. Now, for some of these, it'll kind of sort of melt-ish down. So it doesn't have this spherical shape anymore. It's kind of deforming because it's uh, soft. So that could have been what happened is it was just so soft after it got hit is that it, I mean, the hit also kicked it up to this incredibly fast spin. I mean, it rotates every five and a half, less than five and a half hours. So it's possible it got hit so hard that it it broke it up a little bit. The crust broke up, magma came up, and it started spinning so fast that it kind of bulged hmm. out.
2: Hmm.
1: So it was it got hit and was it forced it to spin fast enough that it wasn't actually maintained as spherical shape. It kind of bulged out a little bit along the equator. So now they're going back and they're really carefully looking at all the the data which will take a while to go through essentially when you have this kind of a flyby now it's it kind of hung out at vesta for a little while and now it's moving on but you get as much data as you can much faster and much more than you can actually analyze at the time you just kind of store it all on hand and now it's moved on and it's headed to Ceres. so now the team that's going to analyze all the vesta data is now kind of sitting down and going through all of that. So, it'll be interesting as time goes on, the further information that they get from the from this and what can, they can say about Vesta's past. Hmm. And did it start off as a as a baby planet, essentially, that...
0: Kind of got a rough shake of the ice. Kinda, yeah, I got a rough... Kind of got beat up by the uh, solar system.
1: Yeah, I got beat up and wasn't <laughs> able to uh, get into a planet.
0: Uh, I have a, a jingle I could dust off here if you... <laughs>
1: Yes, you can. All right. right.
0: Good news then, everybody, because that means it's time for a Curiosity update. Liftoff of the Atlas V with Curiosity.
2: Touchdown confirmed.
0: Receive on fire. It's a wheel. It's a wheel.
1: wheel. (laughs) Yes. It's down on the ground. We actually see pictures.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. What do we have this week? So, Curiosity has made its longest drive in for itself it made uh, about 160 feet in a day. So in total it's gone about a quarter mile now. Okay. So it's it's moving. Now, they move slow cuz you have to be careful when you're driving something on Mars. So you got to be careful and there's a lot of, you know, stop and we tested all the instruments for a little while, you have stop and test uh, a certain rock or a specific sample. So it's it's not going to go all that fast, but they've now had their longest drive for for them.
0: Okay.
1: Able to see. We had, if you remember, last week of the week before we talked about, they're able to actually, from the mass cam, spot uh, Phobos passing in front of the sun. Yeah. So like a a mini eclipse. They've actually been able to spot it in the daytime now. So it could be the first time that Phobos has been seen during the day. Oh, really? On Mars. So they kind of looked it up. They had to, you know, tweak the photo just a little, kind of get the contrast out to be able to say, oh, yes, it, it is right there. You can see it. So they've actually able to see Phobos during the day. And if you've been watching the news, you may have seen, um, well, science news, that they're actually able to see evidence uh, that they're in or Driving around an ancient riverbed.
0: Yeah, now this is what I've heard the most about.
1: Yes, so there's pictures, and you can see it's essentially almost looks like um, someone jacker hammered up a slab of city sidewalk. <laughs> you now so it's you know it's up on an angle, and this specific type of you know uh, sand and gravel and pebbles crunched together in this nature is indicative of. The riverbed here on Earth. It looks practically the same. Yeah. And it's interesting because from this, you can actually guess by the size of the pebbles and how rounded they are, the depth and how fast the flow was going. So you can say, so that from that they're able to say, all right, they these have very rounded edges. So they obviously were able to go four ways and down a river and round out and from the size of the largest so they can say okay well you had to have water f- traveling fast enough to be able to move that size of rock so they're able to say all right it has to have been flowing at about three feet a second hmm. and they're able to guess um from the layout and from those rocks that it was probably ankle to hip deep huh. Now, it's a because you can go through, and there's been, you know, they made this, oh my gosh, first ancient riverbed on Mars evidence. Now, all right, we're able to kind of see wa- evidence of water on Mars for the Viking missions in 1976 or so. Right, okay. But as we go through and we're able to look at more data and you're able to say, okay, well, this is, um, oh, now we have evidence that we can see this specific mineralogy that's made with water. Awesome. Now we can say this plane was kind of soggy at one point and we can see um uh in the orbital data this rim you know the crater rim and then there's a little block in it you can see like a river essentially coming down from it and this whole you know area that looks like a you know so that this is where all the the river came out into and it spread out in this area
0: yeah yeah totally does
1: so it looks very much like that from Earth. What this says is this, it it couldn't have lasted a very short period of time. It wasn't just a flash burst. You know, this had to have been going for a specific amount of time and had to move along a riverbed to round out all these rocks. Now, in the one of the videos, you can see little blue lines. And that's probably what happens is, think of it as... Um, the Mississippi or something where you have this river that kind of moves over time. So maybe it was this river delta. You now here's the main you know, river and then it kind of spreads out into this delta. And then the river after that point maybe moves to different parts at separate times. But this is, you know, they could definitely see these and say, yes, this, this river was there for a while. It wasn't just a, a one-time event. It was flowing for a little while, three feet a second. You know, it had some depth to it. So it's just another one of those interesting footnotes in the history of water on Mars.
0: And it's right at Curiosity's, right near Curiosity's landing site.
1: Yes, they actually seen two uh, pieces of evidence about this. One, when they landed, they saw some rock that was upturned from the jets you know, from just it landing, they're able to see it. And they're like, huh, that kind of looks like this. Wow. And now they've driven by another one of these that they are able to get much closer and actually use the cameras to get a very detailed view of these and say, okay, yes, this looks pretty much exactly like what we see on earth in this case.
0: Wow. Well done. I mean, they planned that well.
1: Yes. Well, some things aren't planned. Some things are really lucky.
0: Is this one but, of them?
1: Um, well, they specifically landed in this type of area. Yeah, because they
0: figured it had a shot of stuff like this.
1: Yeah, because they're shot of this. I mean, they're it's still headed to, you know, the Mount Sharp because it has specific qualities that are most likely to have shown. Did, you know, green goo or something grow there at one point? So
0: it's called algae, Heather. It's not that gross. Well. <laughs> It uh,
1: could be moss or goodness only knows.
0: Well, step into the time machine because I just recently yes. tidied things up. Let's, uh, oh, let's head back in time.
2: Whoa, oh, oh, look at oh, oh. that. Oh, oh, here, here we, we go. Belt, too. Here we go. Yeah, I know. I did.
0: Oh, good. Good. We're going to make it. See, I was a little okay. worried. I actually forgot to charge the battery. Uh, oh, my gosh. So, luckily, only 55 years ago, October 4th, 1957.
1: Yes, but Nick, it's one of the reasons why our book choice of this week. Oh,
0: perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the space age began. The Soviet Union, to the dismay of the US, launched Sputnik, the first man made satellite to orbit the Earth.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but just with the Sputnik thing, this I had no idea really until I really read this book how mm. big this was.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. I mean it started I mean, all it did was a big shiny you know
2: spear. And it beeped.
1: That yeah, that, that beeped. A radio frequency and circled the Earth every ninety-five minutes, and that kind of freaked everyone out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, well, because they didn't know what a they didn't they you know first of all it was a huge feat to begin with. Yeah. But uh, you know, if it seemed like well, if they could do that, what could they do next? And yeah. and at first, you know, people didn't know what it was.
1: Yeah. I mean, all you see is this little. I mean, this is before satellites, before you know these high. High altitude airliners. So you see this little dot flying across the sky, and you—you know—they're telling you it's transmitting a beep.
0: Yeah. That's. And and what's great is this—that book connects the dots from how you got how you go from Sputnik, mm-hmm. really how you go from World War II to the yeah. to the moon landing. It, they really connect World War II to the moon landing, and Sputnik plays a huge part in all of that. Yeah. Wow. And and. You think about this: fifty-five years ago is not that long, and we have went from no. Sputnik to DirecTV and and all that stuff. I mean, yeah. we, we've really gone, we've really gone a, a huge leap.
1: Well, I mean, look, fifty-seven to sixty-nine. I mean, in fifty-seven, we launched Sputnik and went, "Oh wow, we've we've put a hundred you know, and eighty-pound satellite into orbit," and in sixty-nine, oh, awesome, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are. Skipping around on the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 55 years, though. It really is a yeah. lot of progress, in 55 years. All right, Heather. Well, uh, All that's, right. that's good for looking back. Now it's time to look up into the sky this week.
1: That's right. On Wednesday, before sunrise, Venus is going to pass very close to the star Regulus, which they're pretty much just as bright as each other. And they're going to be so close, you'll need binoculars to be able to separate them. Huh. So it's going to be this huge, bright... Um, in the so you'll be able to see them just before sunrise on Wednesday. It's actually going to be Venus and Regulus, so two things together. Uh, also on Wednesday, uh, about uh, in the night, about 11 p.m., the Pleiades star cluster will be to the left of the moon. It's almost kind of looks like a little blobby blur. Depends on how well your your night vision is and kind of where you are at you know, how much city lights you have. But there's just a group of stars very close to each other. And so... That sounds like a
0: smartphone. I thought you didn't have a smartphone.
1: I have a phone that beeps at me.
0: Oh, so it's being a dumb phone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a dumb phone. (laughs) So, and Friday, you'll actually be seeing uh, about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, Jupiter's going to be rising in the east northeast. What, what? Yeah, got Jupiter, and last quarter moon's going to rise uh, just below Jupiter. And in general this week, we've got Venus coming about out t- up about two hours before sunrise in the east to northeast. By dawn, it'll be high in the east. Mars this week will be in the evening twilight, real low to the horizon. Uh, also in that general area is the red star Antares, and Mars will be the um, to the lower right. So Mars is uh, you know, down to Earth compared to the star uh, Antares. Jupiter this week, about 10 p.m. And the east-northeast, uh, to its right, is another fainter star, uh, orange star Aldebaran. So we've got a lot of confusing orange stars this week. And Saturn is going to be at sunset this week. Um, barely Barely visible in the sunset. It'll just be... It and Mars will kind of be out there, but they're very going to be very washed out. So it's going to be a little hard to see it now.
0: Okay. Keep an eye out, though. Yep. I, I can do that. Yeah. Well, there we go. That's the whole show, that's show, isn't it? Wow. I think that's the show. Big show. Oh, my this goodness. Week, this week. Well, Heather, where can people uh, find you? Uh, on the? T- I know you're on the tweeters. Tell people about yes. that. Yes.
1: I'm on JB underscore Mars underscore base.
0: There you go. Of course, you can email. Any thoughts or feedback to cybite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can join us live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, which I believe that would make that 11.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, or, boy, it's early in the morning at places in the world. Except for in Sydney, eh. it's like 2 p.m. So you can always join us if you're or 1 p.m., one thirty Sydney. Time. Whatever. Anyways, everyone, Side Bites available for download every Wednesday morning over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. And then, of course, uh, we will come out every single week. So if you can't join us live, you can just grab it on the download. Thanks, everyone, go. for tuning to this week's episode of Side Bite. And we'll see you right back here next week.